Heavenly Father, we just pray for this time together as we look at your word and as we allow it to speak to us and our walk with you. Lord God, I pray that you would illuminate yourself, that uh, we would grow up in our faith and that we would be brighter lights and saltier salt in this world that so desperately needs you. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Excellent. Now, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that millions of people have read C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories. Um, they, I think they've been translated in many different languages, and thanks to the power of Disney's serialisation, a lot more people are aware of them. And it's very um, normal in a story for you to identify or have a favourite particular character. Um, many cheer for the fawn, you know, he makes this mistake in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and then he tries to remedy it. Uh, if you are a child, you often identify with the children. Um, in the story and, and, and the decisions and the journey that they take. And then, um, it's a wonderful preacher favourite, is this Aslan, the lion, who is uh, possibly the, the best Christ-like figure you will find in literature. I've never found any uh, allegory or metaphor for Jesus quite like Aslan, and he is a uh, he, he is a, a great character to sort of find something of Jesus in. Now, my youngest child, um, with all these opportunities and characters, there is a, a little character called Reaper Cheap, who's a little mouse, and he's heroic and audacious, and um, he speaks back. And um, there's a guy called Eustace Scrub that he always, always uh, gets up the nose of, and, and my youngest one just loves. Reaper cheap, and whenever he comes in, his little face lights up and uh, he sort of jumps up on the chair. Now, personally, I like a lesser known figure in these Narnian stories. I love a, a marsh wiggle. And some of you are unfamiliar with the Narnia tales and go, Kevin, what's a marsh wiggle? Well, I'm going to tell you what a marsh wiggle is. Um, I'm going to turn to. Um, he kind of features only in the Silver Chair book. He features a little bit in The Last Battle, but he's mostly in The Silver Chair. And so Jill and Scrubs get to Narnia, and it says this. Where has the thingamy got to, I wonder, said Jill. The marsh wiggle, said Scrub, as if he were rather proud of knowing the word. I expect, hello, that must be him. And then they both saw him sitting with his back to them, fishing about 50 yards away. He had been hard to see at first because he was nearly the same colour as the marsh and because he sat so still. I suppose we'd better go and speak to him, said Jill. Scrub nodded and they both felt a little nervous. As they drew nearer, the figure turned its head and showed them a long, thin face with rather shunken cheeks, a tightly shut mouth, a sharp nose and no beard. He was wearing a high-pointed hat like a steeple and an enormously wide, flat brim. The hair, if it could be called hair, which hung over his large ears was greeny-grey, and each lock was flat rather than round, so that they were like tiny reeds. His expression was very solemn, his complexion muddy, 
And you could see at once that he took a very serious view of life. Good morning, guests, he said. Though when I say good, I don't mean it won't probably turn to rain or it might snow or fog or thunder. You didn't get any sleep, I dare say. Yes, we did, though, said you. We had a lovely night. Ah, said the Marsh Wiggle, shaking his head. I see you're making the best of a bad job. That's all right. Um, You've been brought up, you have. You've learned to put a good face on things. Please, we don't know your name, said Scrub. Puddleglum's my name. But it doesn't matter if if you forget it. I can always tell it to you again. And so we have this unexpected guy called Puddleglum uh, in the silver chair. And he is possibly the most pessimistic character you will ever meet. Anything good, he will often say, he would try and qualify it. Uh, He will try and see the negative side of it. And he doesn't want anyone to get up there. Enthusiasm's too high because he just wants to be uh, uh, real. And uh, wonderfully, uh, Puddleglum is seen as flighty and optimistic amongst the Marsh Wiggles. He's actually, um, uh, he's actually seen as got sort of childish enthusiasms and all the Marsh Wiggles are even dourer. Anyway, in the silver chair, there is uh, one of my favourite moments in the whole of all uh, the Narnia stories. Um, and it's he goes into something called the underworld, which is basically a world underground. And he goes with Eustace Scrub and Jill, and they are looking for what used to be Prince Caspian and now is King Caspian. They're looking for his son. He has gone missing, and they're searching for him. And then it says this, and um, I think for me, I could stop at this episode that C.S. Lewis writes and think you've probably got enough to... uh, go away with but um, I got half an hour to fill so I'm not going to do that so the witch it's another witch has got Prince Caspian's son sort of trapped underground and Puddleglum and Jill and Eustace have come to rescue him it goes this now the witch said nothing at all but moved gently across the room always keeping her face and eyes very steadily towards the prince When she had come to a little ark set in the wall not far from the fireplace, she opened it and took out first a handful of green powder. This she threw on the fire. It did not blaze very much, but a sweet and drowsy smell came from it. And all through the conversation which followed, that smell grew stronger and filled the room and made it harder to think. Secondly, she took out a musical instrument, rather like a mandolin, and she began to play it with her fingers, a steady, monotonous thrumming that you didn't notice after a few minutes. But the less you noticed it, the more it got into your brain and your blood. This also made it hard to think. After she had thrummed for a time and the sweet smell was now strong, she began speaking in a sweet, quiet voice. Narnia, she said. Narnia, I've often heard your lordship utter that name in your ravings. Dear prince, you are very sick. There is no land called Narnia. Yes, there is, though, ma'am, said Puddleglum. You see, I happen to have lived there all my life. Indeed, said the witch. Tell me, me, I pray you, where is the country? Up there, said Puddleglum, stoutly pointing overhead. "I, I don't know exactly where. How, said the queen, with a kind, soft, musical laugh, is there a country up among the stones and mortar of the roof? No, said Puddleglum, struggling a little to get his breath. It's in the overworld. And, and what? And where, pray, is this 
How do you call it? Overworld. Oh, don't be so silly, said Scrub, who was fighting hard against the enchantment of the sweet smell and the thrumming. As if you didn't know, it's up above, up, where you can see the sky and the sun and the stars. Why, we've been, you've been there yourself. We met you there. I cry you mercy, little brother, laughed the witch. You couldn't have heard a lovelier laugh. I have no memory of that meeting. But we often meet our friends in strange places when we dream, and unless... Uh, all dreamed alike, you must not ask them to remember it too. Madam, said the prince sternly, I have already told your grace that I am the king's son of Narnia. And thou shalt be, dear friend, said the witch in a soothing voice, as if she were humouring a child. You shall be king of many imagined lands in thy fancies. We've been there too, snapped Jill. She was very angry, because she could feel the enchantment getting hold of her every moment. But of course, the very fact that she could still feel it showed that it had not yet fully worked. And thou art queen of Narnia too, I doubt not, pretty one, said the witch in the same coaxing, half-mocking tone. I'm nothing of the sort, said Jill, stamping her foot. We come from another world. Why, this is a prettier game than the other, said the witch. Tell us, little maid, where is this other world? What ships and chariots go between it and ours? And then the, the dialogue just goes on and on as the witch tries to uh, convince these guys that there is no overworld, that the underland is all that there is, and that only what they can see and hear in that cave, that is the totality of existence. Now, I really wanted to tell you how this was all part of um, this allegory Plato had, and then I started going off on one, and we would have never finished the talk. But Suffice to say, I want you to see the scene of the witch trying to convince these guys that what they see and hear in that cave was all that there was. And that descriptions and dreams of sunlight and trees, these were fantasies and make-believe. And Puddleglum knows that the witch is telling a lie. And he does his very best to confront this, to stand up to her and her evil potions and her gentle playing. And uh, in the end, um, sorry to ruin the story, but uh, in the end, the children and Puddleglum win out and the witch loses. Throughout Jesus' earthly life, and you can read it in the Gospels, he pointed to an eternity. He said that that Land which people see and felt and heard then and there. That was not the totality of existence. That there was something more to be enjoyed. That what we could indulge our senses with, that there was more to life than that. And Jesus' teachings and even he himself continues today. And he comes to each one of us and says, this physical life that you enjoy, that is not all there is. You are being enchanted to believe otherwise. You are being lied to and deceived that this world of flesh and blood and 3D objects, that that is all there is and that there is nothing more to worry about. And Jesus says, but there is. 
There is an overland. There is a land of beauty and trees and sunlight. And there is something far greater than you can imagine. And that some of you can feel it in your hearts and say, oh, that, that sounds more like I sh- felt existence should be. That this underland we endure right now is not all there is. But not everyone can feel that enchantment. Not everyone can sense that powder that the witch has sprinkled on the fire. Not everyone can discern the mandolin gentle uh, playing in the background. Not everyone realises it's an enchantment. And in fact, I fear the majority of humanity believes the lie that this 3D world is all that there is, that there is no eternity, there is no spiritual reality, that there is nothing beyond what we can see and hear with our senses. And so Jesus is rejected and anyone who tries to promote what Jesus said is rejected too. And this ultimately meant that Jesus was uh, uh, pushed to the side and outside the city and he was uh, executed because people didn't like to hear and that they were enjoying the enchantment that was going on in their lives. Now today's reading from Peter, um, he works out some of the implications of this. So if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, and that is Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Human reason and human senses They take in what Jesus says and then they return with scoffing. It makes no sense. His talk of an overworld is just ridiculous. But the thing is, when judgment comes, when time comes to the fulfillment, Jesus' truth will be the one standing. And all those that scoff at the idea that they're being enchanted will suddenly realise The truth. And so we mustn't be surprised when the folk around us don't smell that saccharine uh, magic powder on the fire and the monotonous sound of the mandolin in the background. They We mustn't be surprised when we encounter people that are enchanted to believe that this world is all there is. That this world that's full of death and disease and sin, this world that is grimy and has all sorts of dirty fingerprints over it, that this is not all there is. There is something gloriously intoxicating about thinking that 
this world is all there is and that we are answerable to no one. And people uh, get off on it. They, they, uh, they start to imbibe it and believe their own lies where they are not accountable to anyone, that morality is of their choosing and that right or wrong is something that we are arbiters of ourselves. But the thing is, that is an illusion. Truth is a real thing. Fairness is a real thing. Good, evil and justice, they are things that you can measure and see and know. We do not make them up. We do not invent them. And Jesus is the antidote to that magic potion. He is the guitar rift that cuts across that monotonous mandolin. He is the antidote to all this enchantment that would fill our nostrils and our ears with the lie that this here and now is all there is. Jesus is the one that God chose to bring revelation that interrupted history, that came in amidst, uh, while everyone was getting on with their lives, to say there is something more that you need to wake up to, that there is something more to enjoy, there is something more to look out for. And uh, Peter tells us that Jesus was chosen and precious to do this. Before Sam and I got married, we went to this fancy jeweller's in a place called Smithbrook Kilns, and it's kind of near Cranley. If you go from Horsham to Guildford, you'll see a little signpost to it, and lovely little set of little cottage industries and sort of artisans and all that sort of thing. And we went to this jeweller's there, and... um, The only other time I'd really been to a jeweller's was to buy uh, Sam's engagement ring. And so I was a little taken aback with the idea that suddenly I had to make a choice. And there was a vast array of rings and wedding bands of every conceivable shape, size and material. And as I um, don't wear jewellery of any kind, it was kind of a a little awe-inspiring and a little intimidating. What do I choose? How do I know? I've got to live live with this thing for the rest of my life. Now, the obvious choice was gold. Um, That seems to me an obvious, clear, precious metal um, and something that uh, I've seen sort of my parents have on their uh, wedding bands. But, um, having done a little bit of geology and geography, I was aware that it's quite a soft metal and it deforms and scratches And that if I was going to have something that was last me the rest of my life, gold really wasn't top of my list. But if you choose another metal, you have other downsides. You can, they can start to either corrode or they can be heavy or uh, something else. And so there were all these different metals and um, I didn't, and I knew the downsides of many of them and I was like, well, what do I choose? And then... I found a little hole off to the side because these were the 
the cheap rings, you know, the, the rings that not many other people wanted, but it was the titanium section. And as a kid, uh, my dad had like these various bike books and it would always be the most expensive one at the back. And the most recent of my dad's magazines, he would have the titanium bike, which is a brand new uh, technology. And suddenly my ears pricked up and my eyes lit up that these titanium rings were in the corner. And I was aware that titanium was a metal that didn't have some of the downsides of the other metal rings I was looking at. Titanium is very strong. It's going to see you through your life. It is very light. And uh, uh, so it's easy to to wear. It doesn't deform or corrode. And... um, I don't quite know how this works, but it's hypoallergenic, so you don't get, um, you don't get sort of rashes and stuff with it. Um, and because uh, I'm not sort of very familiar with jewellery and, and hadn't worn it, um, this titanium ring was kind of the answer to all the things I wanted. It had none of the downsides of all the other metals that I saw, and it's the one I chose. And Peter this morning reminds us that like titanium... Jesus is the best solution to a range of issues. There are a range of challenges that we can be faced with in life, but Jesus is the best solution to them all. We are told that Jesus is a living rock. First of all, Jesus is like a rock or a stone. His character and priorities are strong and firm, and steadfast, and reliable. When we say we have faith in him, when we trust in him, when we commit to him, when we follow him, we have no fears that he will give way, that he will, um, he will crumble at a particular force, or that he will move the goalposts. We have no fear that there'll be an internal quarry in heaven and we find that Jesus has been fleecing all the angels of their money and got a little nest egg of his own. He doesn't change. He doesn't become something different. When we know him in a thousand years, he will be exactly the same kind, generous uh, God the Son that we know now. The Son who we read of all the beautiful things he did in the Gospels, he's the same today. He is rock-like in that. But Jesus is not rock-like in that he is not cold, sterile and lifeless. I don't know if you've ever had a relationship with a rock, but it is not something that you're going to find very fulfilling. He... um, Jesus, on the other hand, is full of vitality and energy. When we connect with him, Jesus promises, he doesn't say, um, I'm like the cherry on the top. He goes, you will find life to the full. Anything you thought life was good about right now, you are going to find that uh, exponentially increased. You're going to find in me the answers to all the questions you have. You're going to find in me everything you've ever wanted. And we find this living rock, this beautiful illustration of who Jesus is. In this world, we are invited to entrust and rest in so many different places. However, they are all inadequate one way 
or another. Sometimes partners, friends and family seem a good idea that they're the definition of ourselves. You know, they are the most important things. Partners, friends and family, that they come above everything else. And you hear that and see that in how people live our lives. Nothing comes above them. But the thing is, people always fail, change and die. Always. There is no one out there that doesn't fail, change and die. At other moments, we realise the inadequacy of people and so we, t- we turn our attentions to other things. And you see people turn their attentions to work or education or to philosophy or religion or something else that you can see and kind of rest your point on. You know where it is and it's going to stay there. And when you move away, you can come back to it and it's still there. But ultimately, they are barren. Like rocks, you can't have a relationship with them. Only Jesus is the living stone. Only he is both reliable and steadfast and life-giving, fun and delightful. There is no other substance under heaven on earth that can be compared to Jesus. He is the only one to rest in. Hopefully, as we gaze at this living rock, we are intrigued, we are reassured, and maybe even excited. But Jesus doesn't want us to merely like Jesus' Facebook page. Jesus, um, Peter doesn't want us merely to become fans of Jesus, that whenever he comes into town, we sort of uh, wave and cheer. We are not there to be an audience for him. Peter says there is more for those that would know Jesus. At the risk of pushing the uh, sermon beyond uh, your tolerance, I'm going to read another great book. Um, I'm going to read from uh, Ernest Hemingway's um, The Old Man and the Sea. It was credited as one of the reasons why Ernest Hemingway won the Nobel Peace Prize for Literature. Um, And it tells the account. uh, It's a fantastic, and it's short. If ever you want to be sort of uh, educated and sort of come across as literary, uh, look how thin that is. You can read that in an afternoon. Um, And it tells the story of a Cuban fisherman and a local boy called Manolin. Um, And so I'm just going to read a couple of pages of this. So the fisherman's called Santiago. Santiago, the boy said. Yes, the old man said. He was holding his glass and thinking of many years ago. Can I get out and get sardines for you for tomorrow? No. Go and play baseball. I can still row and my partner will throw the net. I would like to go. If I cannot fish with you, I'd like to serve you in some other way. You bought me a beer, the old man said. You are already a man. How old was I when you first took me out in a boat? You were five. And you nearly were killed when I brought in that fish in too green and he nearly tore the boat to pieces. Can you remember? 
I can remember. I can remember the tail slapping and banging and the thwart breaking and the noise of the clubbing. I can remember you throwing me into the bow where the wet coiled lines were and feeling that whole boat shiver and the noise of you clubbing the fish like a chopping a tree down and the sweat, sweet blood smell all over me. Can you really remember all that? Or did I just tell it to you? I remember everything from when we first went together. The old man looked at him with his sunburnt, confident, loving eyes. If you were my boy, I would take you out and gamble on the waves. He said, but you are, you are your father's and your mother's and you are already in a lucky boat. May I get sardines? I know where I can get four baits too. I have mine left from today. I'll put them in the salt in the box. Let me get you four fresh ones. One, said the old man. His hope and confidence had never quite gone, but now they were freshening as the breeze rises. Go on, two, said the boy, two. The old man agreed. You didn't steal, steal them, did you? I would, said the boy, but, but I bought these. Thank you said the old man. He was too simple to wonder when he had attained humility, but he knew he had attained it then, and he knew it was not disgraceful, and it carried no loss of true pride. Tomorrow is going to be a good day with this current, he said. Where are you going? the boy asked. Far out, to come in when the wind shifts. I want to be out before it is light. And... uh, the story goes on to account Santiago going into the waves and uh, hooking this marlin, and it is an epic battle of man and nature. And, and that theme is one that many people have drawn out of the book and, and uh, uh, really enjoy. But in the little bit I read out, the boy Manolin has this great affection for old man Santiago. Santiago had initiated him into this grown-up world of boats and fishing and uh, catching marlin. And the affection grows and increases. And what does it look like? It looks like time spent together and the boy adopting the values and character and qualities of Santiago. Increasingly, the boy knows what it takes to be a fisherman and how to help this old man. Manolin not only takes care of practicalities like uh, uh, ripping the top off a Budweiser for the guy to enjoy, but he anticipates his needs. He looks out for bait for the guy to take out and for other things to help the old man catch this marlin that the rest of the fishing town mock him for not catching. And we find here a picture of imitation that is really beautiful in Hemingway's words. And as we think on that, Peter brings in something that agrees with it. He says, we are to come to Jesus and we are to be like him. We are to imitate him. We are to hang out on the dock and share a beer with him. We are not just to admire him at arm's length. We are not just to recognise a great personality in him. We're not just to think that what Jesus says is helpful to other people. 
We are to spend time with Jesus. Physical, actual time. Not just wishing we could, or thinking that other people should spend more time with him, but we ourselves should be carving out time from our routines, from our weeks, from our days, to hang out with him. And what this means is that we take on his nature. Peter says we become living stones too. This incredible character of Jesus, the fact that he is steadfast and life-giving, that he is faithful and exciting, these attributes of a living stone that we have benefited from, that becomes us. We become faithful and helpful. We become steadfast and we become life-giving. And Peter doesn't envisage an every-man-for-himself scenario where we all compete to be more life-giving than the other and we all tear Jesus uh, from pillar to post going, spend time with me, spend time with me. No, no. Peter doesn't envisage that where we have a wall chart where we rank how Alastair Roof and uh, Peter have done this week and who's more living rock-like than the other. Peter has a different idea. As Christians draw near the living stone, we become living stones ourselves. And the living stones we become, we complement each other. We fit in harmony together. When we come together, it should be a good fit. We should be helpful towards each other. So how do you know if you are just a fan of Jesus... Or actually someone that spends time with him? Well, Peter says it very clearly. He says the proof works out in spiritual sacrifices. That's how you can tell whether someone just likes Jesus or actually follows him. Now, the... Language of spiritual sacrifice can seem a little foreign to us. It's not something that we use in everyday language. But we find that there is a lot of other bits of scripture that tell us what spiritual sacrifice looks like after following Jesus. Romans 12 says that if we treat our bodies as spiritual sacrifices, then we are doing what we should. If how we behave in these physical bodies is done honouring to Christ, that is a spiritual sacrifice. When we abstain from sexual amorality, when we abstain from greed and envy and gossip and deceit, when we keep at arm's length all those destructive behaviours, that is being a spiritual sacrifice. And that is proof that you're not just a fan of Jesus, but you actually follow him. And when we give over our strength and time and thought to God's purposes, rather than to our own causes, that's another spiritual sacrifice. When the guys turn up here at 8.30 in the morning to set up church, you sacrifice a quiet breakfast in, you sacrifice uh, a lie-in, perhaps catching up on the news or your favourite episode from Netflix... And you sacrifice it for something that's more than yourself. 
when you sacrifice uh, time to help with one of the great charities around the town or to help your neighbour or to look out for other people. That is a spiritual sacrifice. That is proof that you're not just a fan of Jesus, but you are a follower. Awkwardly, Philippines 4 says when you give out money, that is a spiritual sacrifice. Cash in the box at the back and donations to the church account, this is a spiritual sacrifice. When you give out to Lighthouse and Street 360, Easter Team and all the other charities and the ones abroad and... um, probably should sort of chip in with YWAM and uh, other guys. When you give out to those, that is a spiritual sacrifice. You are saying, you know what, I'm not going to reserve that for me, but I'm going to give it away. And that is proof that you are more than a fan of Jesus, but you are a follower. Let me read this final reading. Hebrews chapter 13. says this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods which have no benefit to those who do. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy for his blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Doesn't that remind you of overworld, underland talk? For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. So the writer of the Hebrews connects our praise and worship to a spiritual sacrifice. Then it goes on. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. When we sing and we pray and we practice the gifts of the Holy Spirit together, we ooze living brickness. We prove it. We show it. We demonstrate it. Other people can look at our lives and go, they are someone that has spent time with Jesus. When we fight for the cause of the immigrant, when we meet the needs of the poor, when we attend to the sick, we are being Jesus bricks. We are being people that are clearly people that have followed Jesus. When we open our homes, when we share our lives with each other, when we don't uh, withdraw from the world and close everyone off and isolate ourselves, we are copying Jesus. We are hanging out on the dock and sharing a beer with him because our lives look like his. When we 
remember each other's birthdays. And when we bless each other in small and innocuous ways, this is a sweet sacrifice and something to enjoy. If we do these things just because we fancy them, they are unimpressive to God because they don't have that core of Jesus in the middle. But when we love Jesus, when we know him and have followed him and allowed his character to rub off on ours, when we have taken his priorities and values and character, God is delighted and our faith is proved. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this potent picture of a living stone. God, I thank you that Jesus is both faithful and life-giving. Lord, I pray that you would help us follow him, spend time with him, chase after him, be more than fans but followers. And Lord God, I pray that as we follow Jesus, that we would be very good at these spiritual sacrifices, that we would be good at praise and prayer, that we would be good at sharing and generosity, that we would be good at kindness, that we would be good at giving. Heavenly Father, I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.